Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss a classic piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. And I am Laura Robinson, and we are PhD students in New Testament studies at Duke University. Today we're discussing B.H. Streeter's The Four Gospels, A Study of Origins, published in 1924. This study is really important for establishing the existence of Q, the hypothetical source for Matthew and Luke. This is part of the synoptic problem. So what we're talking about when we talk about the synoptic problem is the question of how the synoptic gospels relate to each other. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not only are they very similar, but there's literary dependence between them. Something like 90% of Mark is in Matthew and 60% of Mark is in Luke. So it looks like the gospel writers did use one another. And the question that we're asking when we talk about the synoptic problem is who used which gospel and how did they do it? I want to make really clear at the set out that we're not going to cover every argument for the existence of Q today. We're not even going to cover all the good ones. Furthermore, on the other side, we're not going to cover all the arguments against Q's existence. What we're going to try to do today is summarize Streeter's argument, particularly the argument found in chapter 7, The Fundamental Solution. Streeter spends the first third of his book on textual criticism and then the latter half on issues like John's use of the synoptics, authorship, and things like that. But we're going to focus on what I think is probably the most influential part of his book, his treatment of the synoptic problem. Today, I'm joined by Ken Olson. Uh, Although there's no one I'd rather make a podcast with than Laura Robinson, when you have to discuss the synoptic problem, you call Ken Olson. Bye, guys. Have fun. I'll catch you in the next episode. So, Ken, why don't you give us a status quaestionis on the synoptic problem and Streeter's bibliography, what he's published up to this point on the topic? Okay, uh, Streeter was an ordained Anglican clergyman and a professor of New Testament at Oxford. He held various academic and ecclesiastical posts. You'll occasionally see him referred to as Canon Streeter because he was a canon <laughs> right. of the Anglican Church. Streeter wasn't new at the synoptic problem in 1924 when this was published. He'd already had two major publications— The first one was the Oxford Studies in the Synoptic Problem volume edited by William Sanday. In that volume, Streeter argued that Mark actually knew Q, and the major difference between uh, his treatment in the 1924 book that we're talking about is that he abandoned that hypothesis. Mark did not know Q in his later work. He also has a 10-page summary of the synoptic problem in Peake's Biblical Commentary published in 1920. What Streeter is advocating in the four Gospels is a four-document hypothesis, and the terminology can get confusing because it's really the same thing as the two-source theory. The two-source theory holds that there is Mark, there is a Q source, and that Matthew and Luke use both of those. The four-document hypothesis, in the form that Streeter advocates it, is there are four documents. There's Mark, there's Q, and there's M, meaning the special Matthewan material, and L, the special Lucan material, and all of those were documents as opposed to oral traditions. This really emerges from the assumption that gospel authors simply don't creatively compose. One of the basic assumptions is what E.P. Sanders called a sort of theory of conservation of matter and energy. The evangelists wanted to tell you everything they knew about Jesus and not to add anything to the traditions they had received. And the four-document hypothesis means Matthew and Luke didn't omit anything that they had, and they didn't create any material that didn't come to them. They didn't add anything new. They just sort of took these four sources 
and using what's called a scissors and paste method, just sort of rearranged them. Nothing was added and nothing was lost. So whenever you get material coming into Matthew that isn't from Mark or Q, it gets labeled M as it came from a written source that Matthew had access to. It's worth noting that the other major school still alive today is what's called the Ferrer theory or the Ferrer-Gulder hypothesis, um, and that is that Luke used Matthew directly, and so there's no reason to posit a common source between the two. So while Streeter obviously isn't aware of Ferrer and Gulder, Ken and I, as we're discussing this, can't help but have this other school playing in our heads, especially considering as students of Mark Goodacre, we're both advocates of this competing school. What he's responding to here, as he says fairly toward the beginning of his treatment in part two on the synoptic problem, is that while Mark and priority is well established, it's the, the what's in question is really the Q hypothesis, right? And interestingly enough, that that's back to the situation we're in now, that people are pretty well convinced of Mark and priority, but Q has been come under increasing number of attacks. So to be clear, the Griesbach hypothesis, the Augustinian hypothesis, um, ideas that Matthew is the first written gospel or that Mark is uh, conflating Matthew and Luke are pretty much passe, even by the time Streeter's writing, just as they are more or less today. But debate around what Q looks like or whether or not there was a Q or Matthew's use of Luke or Luke's use of Matthew is still very much a live issue. Well, uh, right. We should mention that in between 1924, <laughs> when Streeter wrote and now, the Griesbach hypothesis did make a comeback when William Farmer introduced it in 19, in the 1960s. Yes. And then up through the 1980s, there was a fairly active group of scholars promoting that. But that's largely, I don't know that anybody is promoting it currently. Right. So Streeter starts off this chapter by pointing out that plagiarism is a modern concept. Um, plagiarism, the notion of plagiarism is a response to the development of the printing press. In antiquity, it's not considered theft or illegitimate to copy the wording of your sources verbatim. Your historians are expected to rely on the right on their sources. So um, he gives a canonical example that is the chronicler, the author of Chronicles, his use of Samuel and Kings. The author composes his work often relying heavily on his sources. Um, similarly, he uses uh, the Greek historian. Ephorus's use of Diodorus to show that authors were expected to make use of their sources. It's not considered an intellectual crime to take somebody else's work and not give them credit for it. You were perfectly allowed to do that in the ancient world. The problem was only that it, in, in Greek, as opposed to Semitic historiography, there were people that would criticize you if you did that because it meant that you were a completely unoriginal author and couldn't do it in your own style. But we shouldn't work or apply the concept of plagiarism as we conceive of it to authors in antiquity. For the record, I don't think Streeter is quite right about this. Bart Ehrman argues in his book on pseudepigraphy that at least some authors in antiquity had a concept of intellectual property. Still, most Greco-Roman historians wouldn't have considered Matthew's use of Mark theft so much as unoriginality. And there may be reason to think that Jewish authors considered this a normal practice. So discussions of the synoptic problem, Streeter included, have to begin by showing the necessity of positing a literary relationship. It's not enough to think of these authors as drawing upon the same oral traditions or being part of the same community. 
Streeter, as most good treatments of the synoptic problem, starts by arguing that we have to conceive of these authors working with written sources in front of them. To do this, Streeter points to the fact that Matthew reproduces 600 of the 661 verses from Mark. He is copying out often large swaths of high verbatim agreement where he'll substitute maybe a pronoun and some conjunctions and some things like that, but basically drawing word for word upon the Gospel of Mark and copying those things out into his Gospel. Luke operates similarly. Uh, He points out that Matthew reproduces 51% of the words in Mark uh, and Luke 53%, although there are some significant exceptions. Luke's great omission. He doesn't copy over any material from Mark 6 through Mark 8. More compelling, perhaps, are treatments by Kloppenborg um, and others who have shown that there are these strings of verbatim agreement that are just implausible when we're discussing teachings by someone who didn't speak in Greek. The idea that this could, that this relationship could be explained in any way other than direct literary borrowing is unfeasible. Mark in priority is the theory that Mark was the first gospel written and that Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source. Streeter's main argument for Mark in priority is that Mark is the middle term, which I don't think Streeter himself uses that term, middle term, but what it means is that Mark has more in common with Matthew and Luke than they do with each other. Um, This would happen, for instance, if Ian and I were to copy off a paper written by Laura, (laughs) right? Laura... Laura's paper and my paper would have a great deal of agreement. Ian's paper and Laura's paper would have a great deal of agreement. But Ian and I normally would only agree where we also agree with Laura. There might be a very few places where we coincidentally changed what Laura said and agreed with each other, but that would be highly unusual. So Matthew or Luke or both reproduce Mark exactly or identical to Mark, but seldom do Matthew and Luke agree together against Mark. This argument isn't used much by scholars today. It's routinely dismissed as what's called the Lachman fallacy, because on the scenario described, it's also possible that Laura is conflating material from Ken and my papers, that, not, that Ken and I aren't copying off Laura, but Laura is conflating our papers. I'm not actually convinced that the Lachman fallacy is indeed fallacious, but that will have to wait for another time. Streeter proceeds to give a number of more influential arguments for Mark and Priority. For instance... Matthean and Lucan improvements to Mark. The first category of these he gives is like reverential or theologically motivated improvements. So for instance, in Mark 6, 5, where it says Jesus could not do any mighty works among them, Matthew changes that to simply he did not do any mighty works. Similarly, in Mark 10, 18, where Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. In Matthew, this becomes the more abstract philosophical question. Why do you ask me about the good? Um, so instead of say, instead of implying that Jesus himself is not good, it becomes this rhetorical question. He also adduces a handful of grammatical and stylistic improvements. He doesn't mention the geographic corrections, which people have pointed out subsequently, that Mark will occasionally make these geographical faux pas, that, that Jesus travels from Washington, D.C. to New York via Savannah, Georgia type of things. He also argues that, quote, only a lunatic would omit Uh, the infancy narratives, the Sermon on the Mount, and the resurrection narratives. And while this phrasing may be a bit strong, it is a decent question to ask, why would Mark, having received these accounts of Jesus' resurrection appearances, omit them completely? Mark Goodacre has argued that things like the Lord's Prayer 
are very amenable to Mark's theological agenda. It's hard to imagine Mark getting the Lord's Prayer from Matthew or Luke and not including it in any way. These are a weaker class of arguments, to be sure, because it's hard to psychologize what Mark would or would not or should or should not have done. In a future episode, we'll have to cover what I think is probably the best case for Markin priority, which is editorial fatigue in an article by Mark Goodacre um, of Duke University and NT Pod fame. At this point, Streeter gives a helpful characterization of the compositional policy or procedure of Matthew and Luke, respectively. So while Matthew more or less rearranges the central material of Mark and interweave double tradition with Markan contexts, Luke follows Mark's sequence, especially for the first 10 chapters of Luke, and then inserts Markan and non-Markan materials in independent blocks. Luke, in following Mark, is following a block policy. He has two sources, well, actually three sources, uh, Q, L, and Mark, and he'll follow them in blocks. So for Luke 1, 1 through 4.30, he's following Q and L. Then for 4.31 through 6.19, he'll follow Mark and only Mark. For 6.20 and 8.3, back to Q and L. 8.4 through 9.50, back to Mark. 9.31 through 18.4, simply huge block of Q and L. And then 18.5 through 43, back to Mark. Then a very short Q and L block in 19.1 through 27. And then... 1923 through the end of the gospel in chapter 22, following only Mark again. So he would give a block of Markan material followed by a chunk of non-Markan material, double tradition, or Lucan Sondergut, that is material only found in Luke. So this is something agreed to by all people who studied the synoptic problem, that Matthew and Luke, wherever they get these materials from, are treating them in significantly different ways. Now, the... Q theory depends largely on the idea that Matthew and Luke have to be independent of each other. There are people that propose that, well, Luke or Matthew knew the other one and Q, but at that point, you don't really know what you would need Q for. So Streeter is arguing that neither of those views is likely. Matthew didn't know Luke. Luke didn't know Matthew. And the reason he says that, well, he gives two reasons. The first is, if you take Mark's gospel and you write in alongside where Matthew and where Luke have inserted the various sayings, there is no point after the temptation narrative where they agree in inserting that saying, right? And this would mean that if, for instance, Luke knew Matthew, he had to go through Matthew, pull out everything that, that Matthew had added to Mark, and then decide to put it in into the outline of Mark at a completely different location than Matthew had put it. And Streeter says that we could only hold that hypothesis of an author who on other grounds we knew to be a crank. <laughs> right. And Streeter's second argument for thinking that Luke did not know Matthew and Matthew did not know Luke is that for any given pericope, one or the other of them is will have the more original form of the argument, the more primitive form, that one looks later than the other, and sometimes it's Matthew, sometimes it's Luke. If Luke knew Matthew or Matthew knew Luke, what we would expect was one of them would consistently be later than the other. And this has been called the argument from alternating primitivity, which is a big fancy word. Streeter's first argument has been criticized because it seems to go against what Streeter himself says about the block policy, which is that Luke is following Mark in blocks. He follows Mark and gives a block of Markan material, and then he follows his non-Markan source, be it Q, be it Matthew, whatever, for a long time. 
and, and this is entire chapters, and then he'll return and follow Mark for a block. Now, Streeter's argument that, well, Luke hasn't put the same put sayings into the same Markan setting as Matthew had, right, would imply that he's trying to do that. And in fact, he's not putting them in Markan blocks at all. He's putting them in non-Markan blocks. So he's got four large blocks of non-Markan material. He's not trying to take individual settings and put them into different locations within the context of Mark. So the argument basically fails to take into account the different ways that Matthew and Luke are using their material. Luke is following Mark closely for the first 10 chapters and then introducing Markin and non-Markin material in large blocks. So it's not that Luke introduces non-Markin material into different Markin contexts, but that Luke simply doesn't insert non-Markin material into Markin contexts at all after the temptation narrative. The argument that only a crank would do this overlooks the fact that Luke probably had Mark first, and he was probably very familiar with Mark, and he knew where Matthew had added material. Think about when your favorite book has been made into a movie. Do you see the movie and say, wait, that's not in the book, right? You will immediately recognize this stuff has been added. And Luke might very well have decided, I'm going to use a Mark and skeleton for my for my my own gospel. I'm going to follow Mark. But then there's this added material, and I think it's pretty good. And he's going to keep that in separate blocks. But where he's following Mark, he's only going to follow Mark. He's not going to try to conflate it with the new material He's going to follow Mark for a bit, and then he's going to do a bit where he follows only the new material, and then back to Mark. If Luke, for the first 10 chapters, has worked through Mark, and done that material according to the Mark inversions, and then goes and reads Matthew, what he gets is a bunch of material he's already used with the Mathene editions left over. So it's not like he can reproduce the Mark and material he's already used up. What he has is all these leftover chunks from Matthew. Now, the objection to Streeter's second argument, alternating primitivity, is that it's actually really hard to tell, just given two passages, two pericopes, which one is early in the other. Any decent exegete can come up with half a dozen reasons why one would be earlier than the other. This isn't something that's cut and dried. So one example of alternating primitivity is in the Beatitudes. Luke has, blessed are the poor, and Matthew has, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it has been suggested that blessed are the poor in spirit seems to be the more spiritualized, developed one. So Luke here has the earlier tradition, and Matthew has spiritualized this. The problem, of course, with this sort of argument is that Luke is really concerned throughout his gospel for the plight of the poor and the marginalized. And so if he comes across Matthew's tradition, you can equally imagine Luke taking the spirit out to make it about realpolitik. So as with so many of these arguments, it's easy to come up with a scenario in which either version is primitive. We're going to talk more about this later, but there are a number of places in triple tradition, so stories that are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Matthew and Luke agree against Mark. And that shouldn't happen on the two-source theory. One explanation given for this is that Matthew and Luke are working with a different copy of the Gospel of Mark from that which we have received. So they share a version of Mark that they're both copying out of that we don't have any copies left of today. And this is usually called the Proto-Mark or the Ur-Marcus hypothesis. This would solve the problem because Luke doesn't need to depend on Matthew or Matthew and Luke for these coincidental agreements in triple tradition. They both got them from a copy of Mark that we just don't have anymore. Streeter then entertains and rejects the idea of Ur-Marcus. His grounds for this basically are that John and Matthew know the portions of Mark that Luke omits. He instead suggests that Luke used a mutilated form of Mark in order to explain what we call the Great Omission. So when Luke is copying out of Mark, he follows it 
really closely up until 6.45, whereat he skips a whole chunk from 6.45 to 8.26, and this has classically been called the Great Omission. He also, uh, that is, Streeter also thinks that the version of Mark that Luke was using lacked everything after 16.8. So 16.8 is the short or the what we usually think of as the original or initial ending of Mark. Streeter thinks that there was a lost, longer ending of Mark that both Matthew and John received, which explains the commonalities between those two narratives. But Luke, who deviates widely from this version of the resurrection narrative, couldn't have had that. Uh, so he thinks Luke's copy of Mark was missing 645 through 826 and everything after 168, and spends some time explaining how Luke's interpretation of Mark was shaped by some Anakalutha or some uh, inconsistencies set up by this great omission. Yeah, two points to add to what Ian just said. One is about Streeter thinking that the manuscript of Mark that Luke had access to had been damaged. Now, for the longer ending, thinking that everything after a certain point of a manuscript was lost, like the ending had dropped off of a scroll, that happens a lot. That's perfectly plausible. It doesn't mean it happened. It means it's plausible. A number of modern scholars would just think Mark intended to end at 16.8, and that's why it ended at 16.8, rather than it had been damaged. But Streeter's suggestion for the great omission that the scroll of Mark that Luke had access to was missing its middle, that's 6.45 through 8.26, that would be pretty unusual. When scrolls get damaged, it's usually at one end or the other. That he had an almost complete scroll of Mark that had missed its midsection is somewhat odd. It could, of course, have been a codex, which wasn't really on the radar for Streeter. The next section for Streeter is the minor agreements, and these are triple tradition pericopes, so pericopes are stories that are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Matthew and Luke agree with each other for very small units. So things that it's implausible that they're pulling from Q. So an example in the John the Baptist story, John says, he will baptize you in spirit and in fire. And this in fire thing is something that both Matthew and Luke add to Mark. But it's the only thing that they add to Mark there. Um, or I mean, in that, in that one passage, the rest is all copied directly out of Mark. Streeter acknowledges that there are a ton of examples for this, but thinks that most of them can be explained away as grammatical improvements. So places where Matthew and Luke recognize a deficiency in the grammar or style of Mark, examples of cutting away Mark and verbosity. So Mark is often, will use two phrases to say the same thing. The sun, on the third day when the sun was rising, in the morning. Those phrases mean the exact same thing, and often Matthew and Luke will drop one or the other. There are nevertheless a large number of small agreements, the minor agreements, that are not explained as any of these things. These he argues, are better explained as textual harmonizations where the original text of Mark is lost. So, when you look at the textual apparatus or the text tradition for the Synoptic Gospels, you often find that scribes are harmonizing Gospels to each other. So, where Matthew and Luke have a parallel, and Luke has a phrase that Matthew lacks, you often find that a, a handful of manuscripts will have inserted the Lucan phrase that Matthew lacks into Matthew. And Streeter's contention is that a lot of these otherwise inexplicable minor agreements must be cases where the manuscripts that we've received have been corrupted by harmonization to Matthew and or Luke, and then we've lost 
the original or only a small handful of original copies. Interestingly, David Parker would later pick up on this sort of argument to argue that the synoptic problem in general is not a feasible enterprise because of the indeterminacy of the text tradition. We'll have to save discussing that argument for a complete episode on Parker's living text of the Gospels, but I tend to think Parker here is actually overstating the case. People who hold the two-source theory will concede that the minor agreements for a pro- are a problem for their hypothesis because they're not easily explained by Luke and Matthew's use of Mark and then the Q document. Now, people who don't hold the two-source theory think there are other problems besides the minor agreement that might in fact be bigger. Right. It's not as if Ferrer, Golder, Goodacre, Hypothesis people think the minor agreements are the only weakness in two-source theory, that if only we could explain these away the matter would be solved. One of the more unusual parts of the four-document hypothesis proposed by Streeter is his hypothesis of a proto-Luke. He thinks there were Q and L documents, and Luke had actually combined those into a gospel before he got hold of Mark, and that's the reason for his block policy of following first Mark, and then a Q and L, and then Mark for a long block, and then Q and L, is that Luke had already had this gospel composed of Q&L. This has been almost entirely abandoned. This was picked up after Streeter by Vincent Taylor and then by G.B. Caird, but I don't know that Proto-Luke is actually advocated by any scholar writing today. There's another category of gospel material that Streeter and advocates of the two or four document hypothesis, that is, advocates for the existence of Q, introduce, and that is Mark-Q overlaps. So these are, again, triple tradition pericope, where Matthew and Luke deviate substantially from Mark together. That means, as these scholars explain it, that Mark and Q must have both had this narrative, and Mark and Matthew and Luke have both chosen to follow the Q version over and against the Mark version. That sounds eminently plausible, explained through the lens of the solution. But the problem, of course, is that this category shouldn't exist. These are described just phenomenologically, just as we would see them, are places where Matthew and Luke both are using Mark, they both reproduce material out of Mark, but also deviate wildly together. So they have substantial, shared substantial additions. The temptation narrative is a classic case of this. Mark's temptation narrative is really brief, doesn't have the three full episodes where Satan appears to Jesus. Matthew and Luke both add this in after or in the context of copying out of Mark. So one of the best examples of one of these Mark-Q overlaps is the Beelzebul passage. Now Mark has this, it's a triple tradition passage, but Luke and Matthew agree extensively with each other. That shouldn't happen if they're only following Mark and Q unless Q had a version of the passage and Mark had a version of the passage. That's why it's called a Mark-Q overlap. Luke and Matthew are following the Q version of the passage, which is why they agree in this longer version, but it's, all, it's still a triple tradition passage because Mark also has it. So Mark and Q overlapped in some places. So these are passages where Mark is not the middle term, and, and the contention of Q theorists that Matthew and Luke never insert the same material in the same Markan context is simply doesn't hold true because these are substantial passages where Matthew and Luke are deviating and adding 
two mark together in the same way. Right. And to add to that, the way the two-source theory sort of protects itself from criticism is by making exceptions. It's, well, Luke and Matthew used Mark and Q and didn't know each other, and we know that because they never agree against Mark. Except in the minor agreements where they do agree against Mark, and in these Mark-Q overlaps where they agree against Mark extensively. And to cite a familiar name once again, Mark Goodacre has argued in the case against Q that there aren't two neat categories of minor agreements that are one-word, two-word agreements, and major agreements or marquee overlaps where there are entire pericopes. But actually, if you chart out the range of Matthew and Luke agreements against Mark, where they ought not be on the Q theory, you find that there is a continuum of agreements. And the important thing to notice here is how the burden of proof switches that initially people arguing for the two-source theory will say, well, we know that Luke didn't know Matthew because there aren't any agreements. And you point out, well, there are agreements, and they come up with another explanation, which is saying, well, yeah, but my hypothesis can explain that. So in discussing this topic, Streeter gives perhaps his most baffling line. That is, in fact, to put it paradoxically, the overlapping of Mark and Q is more certain than is the existence of Q. So... The probability of A and B is more probable than the probability of A by itself. It's a, <laughs> it's a sort of baffling line in its at least logical incoherence. And what he's doing there is sort of trying to take a weakness of his hypothesis and make it sound like a strength, because he's right. There had to be another source that overlapped with Mark. Either there is this Q hypothesis that overlapped with Mark, or Luke used Matthew, which overlapped with Mark. Or Matthew used Luke, which overlapped with Mark. So he's right that there have to be Mark and overlaps for this material. He's not right that it had to be Q. Right. He's drawing out a real problem in his theory and saying, well, this, this is certainly must have been so. That is more or less Streeter's argument. And while there is a growing coalition of scholars who are skeptical of the existence of Q, it has to be said, Streeter's position still holds a critical consensus in scholarship. The majority of scholars continue to believe Q based on more or less these same arguments. Well, that's all for today. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ian. If you didn't like this detailed episode on the synoptic problem, good news. Laura will be back next time to discuss the genre of the Gospels, or maybe Paul's opponents in the letter to the Galatians. Hooray! If you did like this conversation, good news. Ken and I have recorded a whole series of episodes on the classic works on the synoptic problem that we are going to drop periodically. In any case, we'd really like to hear from you. Tweet at us at Newt Review, that is N-E-W-T Review, or send us an email at NewTestamentReview at gmail.com. Please leave us a review, either commensurate with the quality of your listening experience or exercising the sort of grace of which you hope to be the recipient. You can write to us at NewTestamentReview at gmail.com or find us at Twitter at Newt, and E-W-T, Review. Thanks to my friends Mitch and Luke and all the guys from Carnegie for letting us use their song Come Home in the opening and closing music of the podcast. You should definitely check them out. 